Hi, this is Rich Ellings, President of the National Bureau of Asian Research, otherwise known as NBR, and I have with me Senior Resident Fellow at NBR, William McCahill. Bill is one of the foremost specialists in the world on domestic affairs in China. His professional experience is extraordinary. Uh, Senior Foreign Service, retired, served as Charge Acting Ambassador in our Embassy in Beijing, and uh, with tremendous business experience since. Bill, we just concluded the 19th Party Congress. The Standing Committee of the Politburo was paraded out. Can you give us your initial reactions to what you saw? Thanks, Rich. I think when you look at the Party Congress, we need to look in terms both of the policies that have come out of it and of the people who have come out of it. On the policy side, we had in Xi Jinping's uh, work report, as he called it, to to the Congress, he essentially proclaimed that a new era had come for China and that this would be an era in which China would grow richer and stronger and would move back, in his view, uh, to the center stage of of world affairs and become a role model for other developing countries. On the domestic side, he spoke extensively of strengthening the party, uh, party ideology, the party's ethics, its uh, lifestyle, and so on and of strengthening party control over the economy, not only state enterprises, which are essentially owned by the party, but across even the private sector where party uh, cells, party committees have been formed under Xi's uh, guidance over the last uh, three or four years. And so as for market-oriented reforms, which a lot of Western foreign Uh, financiers and investors had been looking for, I think that they will have to keep on looking. This is just not really um, on the cards in any serious way and uh, the overriding word is control, as much in the society as in the economy. So the sorts of things we've seen with internet censorship, the arrests and detention of lawyers, the crackdown on civil society and so on. Social credit system. The social credit system which is being rolled out across the country beginning in the more restive uh, ethnic minority areas. In any event, all of this policy gets rolled up into something called Xi Jinping thought for developing uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics in the new era. The party congress, 2300 delegates, have spent the last week up through Tuesday studying this Xi Jinping thought and at the end of the Congress they voted unanimously to enshrine it in the party's constitution. Not the state constitution but the party's constitution. So Xi Jinping thought is now up there in the party constitution in neon lights and it stands right alongside Mao Zedong thought and probably a notch or two above Deng Xiaoping theory and then the other two uh, kind of articles of faith Yesterday evening Seattle time, so midday uh, Wednesday in Beijing, uh, we were treated, for those of us who tuned into China Central Television, to what the TV news broadcasters called an historic moment. And this was when Xi Jinping led a group of six other men out onto a platform in the Great Hall of the People, and he introduced them uh, to the assembled Chinese and foreign press and across across the world, really. These are all people who have shown their loyalty to Xi, who have each in his own right a certain uh, record of government or, uh, or party service. But there is absolutely no one of them who could be seen as a rival to Xi, let alone a possible successor. 
So I think the combination of a of Xi Jinping's thought now having been kind of canonized and the uh, the rollout of a standing committee over which she absolutely towers uh, speaks to the authority that she has amassed and really gives him a kind of free hand over the next uh, five years of his second term. So where might problems arise here? Well, one is that uh, China, since the early 1980s, the Chinese Communist Party, has had a kind of collective leadership, a balance of factions and interest groups and, and personalities. And the leaders of the day, Deng Xiaoping particularly, put that uh, kind of system in place because they didn't want to repeat uh, the one-man rule that Mao Zedong had brought them in the first 30 years of the People's Republic. And they tried to install in the party leadership a kind of checks and balances systems that they called collective leadership, there being no real uh, democracy in China, of course. Xi now seems to have turned the clock back on that. And what we see emerging is really Xi as a kind of uh, one-man, strongman rule. Whether this will take, uh, time will tell. China is coming up on some very important deadlines over the next five years. Uh, at the top of the list you have in 2021 the party's own 100th anniversary. And if uh, the party is still in power then, and all signs point to that being the case, uh, it will be the only communist party to be a ruling party on its 100th anniversary. So that's a very big deal. Following year, 2022, is when the next party congress should meet. And it's at that juncture that people will start wondering out loud, perhaps, whether she intends to, uh, to succeed himself for a third term, which would be unprecedented in Chinese modern history and could very well cause rumblings, frictions across the party leadership that will be uh, moving up at that point, as well as the party rank and file. So she is at the top of his game at this point, showing every bit of uh, self-confidence in himself, in the party, and in the Xi Jinping thought that he is now seen promulgated. But uh, it ain't over until it's over. So we'll have to, I think, wait and see over the next, uh, the next few years where this all leads. For foreign interests, particularly for American interests, the thought of a more aggressive, um, more assertive uh, China prepared to present an alternative model of governance to Bretton Woods system that was really set up under American auspices at the end of World War II. This poses a very, very real challenge. Uh, she is setting about building a kind of parallel universe uh, with a set of institutions like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. None of these as yet will rival directly the World Bank and the IMF and so on. And indeed, China very much covets its place at the top table of all of these organizations. But it is another kind of world that's taking shape, a world in which China reverts to the position it had 200, 300 years ago as truly the, the central kingdom, the center of the world. Bill, some commentators have said that the new leadership that's been announced both at the Standing Committee and the full Politburo level suggests a collective leadership. You've just suggested that the leadership, in fact, is more unified, that these are more yes-men than they are an amalgamation of maybe competing factions and so on. Can you give us a little more insight on the Standing Committee? Well, level? I think uh, if you speak of the Politburo and its Standing Committee, you've got a group of um, 
I think including she, you have 24 men and one woman. Within that uh, group of two dozen people, there are two or three uh, men who had previously been thought to have uh, some allegiance to one or another of Xi's predecessor factions. But, you know, Rich, Xi has spent the last five years through his anti-corruption campaign, through centralizing decision-making in his own hands and the party apparatus, through completely reshuffling the, uh, the PLA, transforming its military regions into bigger units, uh, purging a, a score or more of senior generals and installing his own military people there. She has really spent these last five years eradicating both personalities who could be his rivals as well as the sort of patronage networks or factional followings that would impede him. He's been absolutely thorough, I think, in this, and um, those groups have been gelded or completely eliminated, which is why I think that what you see in um, Xi and the men ranked alongside him yesterday in the, in the uh, standing committee, these are Xi's people. He's extracted their fealty in one way or another, and so I think the sort of constraints that might have um, been imposed on Xi in a collective leadership, Xi does not have um, those restraints on his power. American business, especially big business, has enormous um, interests, investments, supply chains, and so on in China. What do you see as a result for them as a consequence of what you've just discussed? Well, I think we'll see more of the same, this having um, occurred over the last three or four years. You've got Xi's move to strengthen the party and the party's control over the economy so that state, uh, large state enterprises uh, have been consolidated or reconsolidated and recapitalized and their managements sort of sworn to uh, party fealty as it were. These are, the, these are the party's crown jewels in heavy industry, in mining, in telecoms, in shipbuilding, railway equipment, all of these areas and I think that trend is going to continue and she intends to make these companies internationally uh, competitive. These behemoths are going to give uh, Western companies a run for their money. Within China proper, the Chinese, as I said earlier, are really on a roll and um, sense little need for foreign capital. They're quite happy uh, to acquire foreign technology, whether legitimately through buying it or by, uh, by covert means such as hacking or pure in industrial espionage. And this will be particularly true for technologies that might broadly be in the new economy. So alternative energies, environmental remediation, both of which are going to be very high on, on Xi's agenda. And thirdly, and again back to this party control theme, you not only will have an expansion of party organizations in, uh, in firms, foreign as well as Chinese, as Xi sets about another round of what he calls party building, we're going to see more and more uh, political campaigns, which can be time-consuming, very distracting for, for bureaucrats, the very people who will have to approve, say, a merger uh, agreement or issue a license for something. But they might be out of the office this week as they go off on a campaign. And finally, and, and related to that last point, I think the anti-corruption campaign which has so intimidated and paralyzed the bureaucracy over these last few years, 
that too will continue. And so this party internal discipline, which will be both uh, ethical discipline and ideological discipline, is going to be more firmly ingrained in the, in the economic life of the party than ever. On that note, let me just ask one last question. To some extent, the purge or the anti-corruption campaign or whatever you want to call it, you know, it has gone international. The party has shown extreme interest in tracking people down all over the world, in some cases kidnapping them, they disappear, these might be even CEOs of companies. Is this going to continue? I think absolutely. Xi's anti-corruption campaign, as he said, was to go after the tigers and the flies. And Guangwei, countless others uh, all, all across the world have been targeted. And thank goodness that the U.S. has not signed an extradition treaty with China. Other Western nations have, have done so. And that these Chinese security agents enter the U.S. and other countries under the guise of uh, cultural officers or business people or one thing or another and um, take the law into their own hands, as they're used to doing at home, of course. This is, uh, this is quite dangerous. This is William McKayhill. Bill, thank you so much. Fantastic. Thanks, Rich.